China and Japan have opposing attitudes to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Putin is threatening to deploy its nuclear weapons in Belarus. You're listening to the podcast Explain Ukraine and our series Around Ukraine in which we discuss the international context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My guest today is Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. Uh, Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Okay, Maxim, hello, and thank you for joining this podcast. So let's discuss the key issues of um, of the international context of the Russian invasion this week. What are they? Hello. So the biggest news have been, of course, the visits of Xi Jinping to Russia and of Fumio Kishida to Ukraine. The big uh, news on the international scale has also been Putin's announcement on uh, the deployment of the transfer of nuclear weapons to Belarus, on his intention to do so. We're also going to uh, once again reassess the tempo of uh, arms and ammunition being delivered to Ukraine, what new initiatives there are there. We're going to refer back to the topic of uh, DeSantis and other politicians in the U.S., uh, how they perceive the war in Ukraine and what their comments may mean. And uh, finally, we're going to talk about the intended recognition of uh, Holodomor as a genocide of Ukrainians uh, by France. Right. So these are these are our topics, and uh, we hope to discuss them in detail in this podcast. Let us start with this China and Japan uh, situation. Uh, you have rightly pointed out that we we see actually a big difference, uh, right, with in the attitude of China and Japan to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Xi Jinping is visiting Russia, while Fumio Kishida, the Japan's uh, prime minister, is visiting Ukraine, and not only Ukraine. He's going to he went to the places of Russian war crimes like Bucha. Uh, can you can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Japan's prime minister's visit? How it is different from the Xi Jinping visit to Russia? How we see this, you know, opposing attitudes of two major countries of Asia? Well, in order to understand the importance of this visit, uh, there are two things that need to be articulated here. First of all, that it was uh, that it coincided in time with the visit of Xi Jinping to uh, Russia. So one can assume that this was a message uh, about this competition being on different sides by, by the Asian powers on the different sides of this war in Ukraine. So that's the first. And second, the visit of uh, the Japanese prime minister, in my opinion, has not been as much about the bilateral agenda between Ukraine and uh, and Japan, but about the um, geopol- geopolitical, global geopolitical dimension of the conflict of, of Russia's war against Ukraine. Because whereas China is more or less, let's say, one can conclude, is taking Russia's side, or at least... Uh, is sending s- certain signals of its readiness to negotiate with Putin and to make friends with Putin. At the same time, Japan, as the representative of the geopolitical West in Asian region, and as a party standing off with China, uh, it shows its support 
support to Ukraine. It is important because uh, there is going to be a G7 summit next month, I think, and Japan is going to be presiding there. It's going to be in Japan. And of course, the war in Ukraine is going to be on the agenda. And given Japan, Japan's background of the standoff with China in the region and also with, with its territorial disputes with Russia over the islands, so it is important for Japan to lead this effort to promote this Western approach about the international law, about the um, conflict settlement, about the aggressors uh, needing to back down and f- for their for the existence of need to punish them. So this is a world view, a standoff between different world worldviews that China and Japan represent in this respective visits of Xi Jinping to Russia. And Fumio Kishida to Ukraine. I don't. I don't think that we we might call it a, a Western vision. I think uh, it is better to call it the uh, the vision which is based on the UN Charter, right? And uh, uh, this is also very important that uh, the support uh, of Ukraine is going far beyond uh, what we call what we generally call the geopolitical West. It goes far beyond uh, these countries. It goes to um, also to Asian countries. It goes to Latin American countries, um, and some of the African countries as well. So this coalition is much wider than what we are calling the West. Uh, at the same time, I think it is also important to note that, uh, well, Xi Jinping, when he was visiting Russia, he was also announcing that he's going to have a uh, phone talk, phone conversation uh, with President Zelensky. And this... Uh, up to my knowledge, uh, hasn't happened, and uh, we don't know whether it will be happening. So if China wants to really position itself as a negotiator, as a mediator, Xi Jinping will need to talk to Zelensky. And uh, the question is why and how Zelensky will agree to talk. Because obviously if Zelensky agrees to talk with Xi Jinping even on the phone, that will give a huge geopolitical card for for China, who would say, "Look, we are really the mediators. We are the peacekeepers. We we bring peace. We we are able to put uh, negotiations between Iran and and Saudi Arabia. Now we we are able to put uh, to organize negotiations um, between Russia and Ukraine, or be a mediator." Uh, so. Indeed, you are right that we increasingly see this polarization between Japan and China. Japan uh, supporting Ukraine, the victim of aggression, and uh, China supporting the aggressor. What next? Uh, the next topic is Belarus and nuclear weapons in Belarus. And here, Chinese question is also present because on the one hand, there are new news uh, that China is opposing this nuclear blackmail by Russia. On the other hand, um, well, um, we have seen recently the uh, the visit of Belarus dictator Lukashenko to China, uh, and uh, quite probably Lukashenko could also serve as a kind of a the third partner in this authoritarian axis between China and Belarus. Can you, Maxim, tell us more about this? Yes, so basically what happened is that uh, Putin reportedly, according to himself, in uh, response to uh, the West's further uh, deployment, well, not deployment, but transfer of arms to Ukraine, uh, Russia has decided to, as Putin said, um, respond to the calls of Minsk and to deploy uh, 
nuclear tactical nuclear weapons in Belarusian territory. And further details on these are hazy, because on the one hand, Putin went as far as in his detail uh, as to uh, say that uh, Russia would prepare uh, Belarusian fighter jet uh, fighter jet teams, you know, aviation experts, etc., etc. So those would uh, assumingly be Belarusians, and that would be the breach of the international law uh, on the non-proliferation of nuclear arms. But at the same time, he said that Russia was not going to breach because uh, it would only station nuclear weapons uh, in, in the Belarusian territory, but it would be administered by uh, by Russia still. So there is a lot of haziness around this, and I think that was Putin's intention, to put it that way, for the world not to be sure but to refrain from two bold moves just in case. So I think that was the idea all along. But uh, either way, as you said, yes, indeed, this can be embedded in a in a wider picture of uh, how China says things, because uh, once again, China has several on several occasions, I think, um, emphasized that uh, the nuclear component to, to this uh, to this conflict to this war should not exist, and uh, so this act of disobedience, shall I put it this way. Uh, to, uh, of Russia toward uh, China is very interesting indeed. So this is maybe there are more games within the axis that we have been talking about. You know, this Belarus, Russia, Iran, China. Then you know that means the eye. Maybe there are some issues that still are painful between themselves. So everybody should be keeping a close eye. Yes, and we should also not forget the uh, that one of the one of the causes of this war is that. Uh, Ukraine actually gave up its nuclear weapons according to Budapest Memorandum and, uh, in 1994 and uh, Russia would certainly not attack Ukraine if Ukraine had the nuclear weapons, right? And uh, the Budapest Memorandum also included the guarantees of the nuclear powers including Russia, included, including United States, including uh, UK um, and uh, these guarantees also don't really seem to work, obviously. Uh, the second issue is, uh, well, Belarus is a, is a good mask for Putin, has always been a good mask because during this war, because uh, we perfectly know that Russia has attacked uh, Ukraine, including from the Belarusian territory. If uh, Russia did not use the Belarusian territory for its attack, there would be no attack on Kyiv, there would be no tragedies uh, of genocidal tragedies of Bucha. Uh, Russians attacked Kyiv from Belarus, and uh, this is also very important to remember. Uh, and, uh, well, I imagine if Russia really deploys the nuclear weapons in Belarus. On the one hand, it will be certainly be a, a, a breach of the international law and the Treaty of Non-Proliferation. On the other hand, it can al always say that if something happens, if, for example, there is a nuclear strike, from Belarusian territory on Ukraine or on any other country, because we have seen Belarusian propagandists, you know, in the aggressive style, some of them are even more aggressive than the Russian propagandists. They, will, they, they were saying they were threatening clearly Poland, Baltic states, Central Europe, Germany and other states, right? And uh, Russia can say, oh, look, it, it's not us, it's actually Belarus, it's Lukashenko, he's mad. Uh, and therefore, you know, it, it, it seems that he, one of the elements of these tactics is to use some m mad guys, even more mad uh, than Putin, 
like Bashar al-Assad in Syria or in the Russian case, people like Prigozhin or Kadyrov and give them, you know, even more, even more capacity of cruel action. So this also might happen. So Be- Belarus is a kind of a, is a kind of a curtain, uh, is a kind of a mask of Russia, Russia itself. We should also keep that in mind. Okay, so what's next? We we can also discuss the the arms supplies to Ukraine. What can you say about this? Well, uh, this topic is a two-edged sword, as they say, because uh, there have been several instances during the last week of good news for Ukraine. And it should be emphasized here that all of them come from the media, from the revelations of media, different media outlets in the West, in Europe or in the US, rather than being any formal statements from governments. So that should be kept in mind. Uh, But on the the other hand, there are uh, increasingly bigger problems with the decline of attention to Ukraine in the world because of the domestic uh, problems or international problems in different countries or in different continents. So when we're talking about the first part of what I said about the good news, tentatively, because again, they are from the media, uh, it seems that, uh, well, there are news that Ukraine is going to receive a couple of dozens of uh, uh, planes, fighter jets, Mirage f- f- fighter jets from uh, uh, France. This is not confirmed yet, as I said, but still this is, if it is true, it would be a breakthrough because that would be a first in- instance when a, f- a Western fighter jets is being given to Ukraine. But again, of course, the timeline here is very important, how long this will be happening and how soon it will be happening. What is even more important, maybe, uh, in the context of the present-day needs of Ukraine, of the immediate needs of Ukraine, is that Bulgaria has reportedly uh, found a way to um, re-export, well, to export through third countries, uh, a big amount of ammunition to Ukraine. And I think one of the ex-military officials in Bulgaria has told media that uh, the amount is so big that it is even going to be able to um, change the situation at the front lines drastically. So fingers crossed, of course, because once again, this only comes from media uh, as of the time being. But we remember that uh, Bulgaria supported Ukraine in the early month of uh, of the Russian invasion, the full-scale invasion, and uh, that also was later characterized as a game changer because Ukraine uh, would have been far worse off without that support and Bulgaria only declared that, that it had happened Ukraine only I think maybe six to nine months after that. So as I said, fingers crossed that what's now going on is just and the and the shortage of information is due to the clandestine nature of this rather than uh, about uh, this not being true. But on the other hand, as I said, and we can discuss this further, there is this big problem with the further decline of attention to Ukraine, which is more and more palpable. Uh, for instance, if you take France, where uh, you, Vladimir, are now, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more from the ground about what's happening, but there are rallies uh, connected with the pension reform that uh, the government uh, is trying to implement in, in in France. So there is that there. And of course, uh, the government's attention and Mr. Macron's attention will be diverted Uh, incrementally from Ukraine, or can be, there is a risk of that. In the US, there is an increasingly bigger uh, pivot to the um, period, the presidential elections period, to the primaries, etc., etc., with all of that approaching. And, uh, of course, 
much of what they're saying about Ukraine, inter alia, uh, and, uh, and and Russia's war about, uh, in Ukraine, it should be understood that those statements are made for the sake of the political gains domestically in the U.S., for the sake of the primaries, rather than for the sincere support of Ukraine. Sometimes those things can coincide in favor of Ukraine, but sometimes they can contradict if you take, for instance, say, statements by Mr. Trump. So there is that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there is a, this danger of uh, of uh, forgetting this war, or at least paying not so much attention. We clearly see it uh, from our experience, from Ukraine world experience, uh, after the anniversary, and this is what we have expected, uh, actually, after the anniversary of the full-scale invasion, we have much lesser uh, addresses by by the foreign media for, for commentary, for op-eds, for writing. And indeed, I am in Paris right now, so I was uh, this morning at France Info, the, the French radio, and uh, this is also was the question uh, that I was asked. I think it was the first question I was asked whether we consider that uh, the West or uh, international partners of Ukraine uh, start to forgetting this war. I don't. I don't have the impression that the, the forgetting is the right word, uh, but uh, but there is of course the risk that uh, the war continues. We understand that. Uh, it's lots of tragedies, lots of pain on the front line. The Russian Russia's, uh, Russia continues to shell Ukrainian cities, towns with missiles. Several several days ago, there was an attack on Slovyansk. Uh, several people killed. Uh, yesterday, there was an attack by Shahed's, uh, the the Iranian drones on Ukrainian cities, including Kiev, and uh, there were some uh, places in Kiev targeted and. Uh, the war explosions, and of course, on the front line, on the Eastern Front, um, people are dying every day. A very, very difficult situation about around Bakhmut, uh, around Avdivka. But all that is not really uh, so much uh, in the media attention anymore. And um, this is uh, this is dangerous because it can also influence the uh, policy decisions. It can uh, it can push for decrease of the public support of the support of Ukraine and, and many, many other things. So uh, we, of course, call our audiences and call our international partners to continue following the Ukrainian agenda and to continue supporting Ukraine. Unfortunately, this is a war. This is a long war. And it is already a long war since 2014. And it will be a long war given the fact that China is increasingly on the side of Russia. And uh, therefore, I mean, we should be prepared for a for being resilient as well and uh, in time. Mm, that doesn't mean, of course, that we can exclude the, uh, the drastic changes and we can exclude the quick finishing of this war, for example, with successful Ukrainian counteroffensive, but... We should also understand that Russians are preparing for this too and they are fortifying their positions uh, in the east and in the south. Uh, okay, so despite this decline of attention, we, we see some very pronounced uh, statements about Ukraine still from uh, the different politicians in Europe, in the United States. We have seen, for example, recently a, a powerful statement by Georgia Meloni, the Italian Prime Minister, 
And we have seen also some change of rhetoric among the American Republicans in particular. One of the candidates, Mr. DeSantis, can you tell us more about this? Yes, so when it comes to Prime Minister Meloni, it, it was a very indeed pronounced example of uh, support of Ukraine because uh, there were a couple of minutes of her speech dedicated to Ukraine in response to what what was being discussed uh, in the Parliament when she was uh, when she was there delivering her speech. Actually, so um, there was a, a bit of an argument in, in the in the Parliament and. Uh, basically, what happened is that uh, Meloni, responding to uh, uh, to an MP, uh, she stated her strong and Italy's strong support to Ukraine. She said that uh, Italy and you know no one, of course, can be against peace settlement, but uh, the propose what some parties in, in Europe, maybe in Italy, propose is more about uh, Ukraine's surrender, basically. Because if we just agree to a ceasefire and any any well, negotiations take off from there, this will basically mean that an occupation is allowed because Russia would be negotiating from the position of strength and having already occupied some of Ukraine's territories, etc. So uh, this was, on the one hand, on the... Oh, in the most immediate context, it was very reassuring to see uh, that powerful of a statement to come from a leader of a major European state, major Western state. But even more importantly is to embed this into a bigger context because uh, Italy has always been, uh, well, at least in recent years, I would say, a usual suspect for the big popularity of far-right movements that usually are much closer to Russia and to Putin himself. And even at the elections to the European Parliament that was very visible in 2019. So to see this uh, resolution, to see uh, this greet on the part of the Prime Minister Meloni and her unequivocal position on supporting Ukraine amidst this risk that could be there uh, in a in a country divided than many other countries are divided with respect to Ukraine, that is a big thing, and that's of course a, a big plus amid this topic about the decline of attention to Ukraine. And the second uh, instance, as you said, Mr. DeSantis, uh, that's the example of uh, quite an, a different pair of shoes. Mr. DeSantis basically during the last week, a couple of days back basically walked back on his comments about about Ukraine because he had previously called it uh, a territorial dispute. So, so he basically downplayed the importance of what's going on. He disregarded by that comment the war crimes, you know, and many... He made it just a political, basically, just a political thing between Russia and Ukraine. And uh, But a couple of days back, he rectified himself, saying as politicians usually say in these instances that his comments had been construed wrongfully, uh, that uh, nobody, that, that all the territories uh, should be Ukrainian. Well, I think he said that if I had power to, you know, to use a magic wand and, you know, do the right thing, I would give the 100% of Ukraine's territory to Ukraine. That's what he said, I think. And he also went as far as to call uh, President Putin a war criminal. So that was a big change of rhetoric. And of course, what I'm driving here at is that this so much illustrates what I had mentioned previously, that this is this rhetoric and changes in rhetoric, they are so much more in the first place about the domestic agenda in the US than about the sincere support of Ukraine. 
And it's good when those things coincide. But we can see that DeSantis had previously been saying, well, not a very friendly thing to Ukraine, right? Uh, in the characterization of this war of Russia's. But now it apparently became uh, more uh, beneficial for him politically in the you know run up to this political cycle in the United States. So he decided that he would be better off to rectify himself, that the fallout uh, from his previous remarks had been more uh, had been bigger than he had expected. So basically we can see how that uh, changes because of the domestic political agenda. So my message here to the listeners would be that include that in your analysis, in your personal analysis of what's going on. Please understand that there is when somebody is defending Putin or defending his rights, his interests in this war, do not do not see this as a rightful argument. Try to be more critical. Try to think that maybe this is not as clear of an argument and as it should be. So be critical. Right, and I think another issue which is very important with both Meloni and uh, DeSantis, and I would also add uh, Kevin McCarthy, who is a Republican um, Republican Speaker of the House of Representatives, who also said, uh, I think on Fox News recently, I think it was past week, and that he clearly pronounced this phrase that Ukrainians actually want to hear from the uh, uh, politicians in the United States that uh, Russia has to be defeated and that he actually supports the idea of, of, of defeat of Russia as as the goal in this war. What, what is interesting is a, a question whether the the, the, the the political parties, the political forces on the right, I, I don't mean far right, but I mean the center right, uh, are actually, uh, w- whether we are, whether we are seeing the trend that they start to be anti-Putinist because uh, previously we have seen a, another trend that uh, not only the far-right parties but also the, 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 the conservative parties uh, in different countries uh, of the world are actually have some sympathies to Putin. Uh, we, can, we could talk about this, for example, with regard to France, uh, the Les Républicains, the, the people like Sarkozy and then Fillon and then, and then others, right? We can talk about this, well, maybe a little bit about Germany. Um, of course, Merkel is a now con- controversial figure because on the one hand she was criticizing Putin, but on the other hand she allowed the, con- the continuation of the Nord Stream and uh, the increased dependence on Germany on Russian gas. We can also, of course, mention Hungary. We can, of course, mention conservatives or right-wing parties in Italy and the increasingly pro-Russian or Russia-friendly uh, trend in among the uh, American Republicans around Trump. Well, I hope that with Melanie and maybe in America, let's see that we we might have we might be witnessing another trend. I mean this right-wing, maybe center-right, but anti-Putin parties. We see that with Melanie. We obviously see that with uh, Prawo and Sprawiedliwość in Poland, although this party is, you know, uh, it's a right-wing party, but with lots of dubious things around with the the attack on, on the public broadcaster, the 
I mean, not the attack, but actually reforgering or reforgering of the judicial system, all these things that um, I think we need to be very critical about. But um, this this is something that we need to think about, whether this change is possible, whether basically right wing parties, conservative parties in Europe, in the United States can again become anti Russian and not pro-Russian because they think that Russia is defending, you know, Christian values or family values or all this, uh, all this um, actually ideas of the Russian propaganda. Of course, they are not defending Christian values. This, this, that's actually an illusion, uh, and that's actually um, bullshit. If I may uh, pronounce this word on this podcast, uh, right? So. Uh, Russia is uh, not, and Russian Putinism is is not at all uh, a force that is protecting any conservative values. It's just a, just a fake, just to play with these values and any other values that you can imagine. And maybe the the the, the last topic is that you mentioned about Holodomor. Uh, we indeed see a move in 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 France. Uh, in, in French Parliament to recognize Holodomor as genocide, and uh, we will follow the, the news in the uh, upcoming days. Despite the real, the difficult situation around the protest about La Grève, which is here uh, around the pension reform, uh, and I think this is this is indeed important that uh, this recognition of Holodomor as either as genocide or as crime against humanity in various different countries. Uh, which we have seen in German Bundestag, which we have seen in the European Parliament. Uh, It is is really important. It is said that um, this trend uh, has has only started after this invasion because we see the clear clear genocidal intentions of, of Russian army and Russian leadership. They really want to erase Ukrainians, they really want to erase the idea of Ukraine as a separate community, as a separate nation, as a separate society. And uh, what we have been asking, what we have been arguing on this podcast in Ukraine world is that this uh, invasion is actually a continuation of this crime uh, and this criminal attitude since many, many centuries, actually. And uh, Holodomor, in which Stalin killed at least 4 million Ukrainian peasants in 1932-1933, also other famines in, 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 in other years as well that took place, were also the the elements of this long story and the elements of this Russian impunity, actually, because what we are witnessing right now is that Putin is actually seeing himself as a continuator of this their politics, Cheka politics, KGB politics. These people who are killing others, uh, either through repressions or through Holodomor, uh, without you know, without being ever punished for that, without being ever condemned for that, without bro- being ever brought to justice for that. They have been changing the places between the victim and the perpetrator. They were saying that victims are perpetrators and perpetrators are victims. And, uh, of course, we need to put an end to this. We need to put an end to this by defeating Russia, by defeating Putinist Russia, by defeating this ideology of Putinism, which is all based on the idea of violence, which is all based on the idea that 
the 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 only way to rule actually is to is to is to is to enlarge the space for violence so we of course welcome these uh, these moves and we hope they will take place uh, in France and in other countries as well okay so we'll be finishing this podcast on this note and uh, thank you very much Maxim for for joining it this was a podcast explaining Ukraine in our series around Ukraine in which we have been discussing the key events in the international context of Russian invasion of Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. My guest is Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. Uh, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and uh, you can also support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at PayPal, uh, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.